the thing I think you're talking about is Greg Russo at one point, I think it was like five rides in and he starts literally slamming the dashboard of the airplane and he screamed an expletive and then said, when are you going to stop letting this airplane fly you and start flying it verbatim? That's what he said. And then on the ground, he said, you know, this thing has throttles, it has a stick. It's designed for you to place it where you want it to go, then put it where you want it to go, make it do what you want it to do. And that was turning around for me too, because that was literal. It, it made me realize that I am in control of that airframe and I can literally tell it what to do. And that changed kind of my dynamics, but I also saw it as an analog to life. I mean, obviously there's a lot of stuff in life we can't control and we don't have full control over, but there are many things we do have the capacity to take control over. And so even in the work that we're doing in this podcast, when I work with students and mentor them, I'm like, you know, you have the capabilities to step in and start controlling some of the, some of the path you're on. Welcome back to Paths to Purpose. Thanks for joining us again this week. We are chatting all about our other co-host this week, Alan, who you all probably know very well by now in voice, but maybe not in background. So we haven't gotten into Alan's background yet in any of the previous episodes and how Alan has started engaging in this work and working with students on finding a path to purpose, as well as how Alan went from working as a U.S. Air Force pilot to an accounting professor, which is a pretty radical career shift in my opinion. So Alan, thank you for being on the hot seat this week. I'm excited. I've never heard your whole career uh, story myself as someone that's known you for almost six years now. So I'm excited to hear the pieces of it and uh, see, see what your thoughts were when you were going through the process. There's probably a reason you've never heard it. <laughs> but I guess we'll unpack that. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so let's start out maybe when you were in high school back, back in the day um, and just kind of walk through what your thoughts were. And did you know that you wanted to go to a certain college? Did you have any thought about what, what motivated you, what drove you intrinsically, all these things that we've been talking about? Did you have any sense of that when you were 18 years old? So the short answer is no, I had absolutely no idea what to do. I, I had some ideas that I enjoyed business. And I think that's partly because my father was involved in business and business education. So for me, I had a frame there, but I didn't have any particular sense of self in high school. Uh, I should note that I went to three high schools. So I ended up graduating out of East Providence High School in Rhode Island, but I also went to high school in Tempe, Arizona and high school in Providence prior to that. So I had a very interesting experience of having to move quite frequently and, and adapt to cultures, but I was pretty lost in high school. And then at the same time, with respect to college, I knew that I wanted to get out of New England. I'd spent a good part of my time in New England between Maine and Rhode Island and yet still stay within reasonable proximity. And so I ended up going to Penn State University the downside to that was that comes with a heavy price tag. Anybody in the United States who understands out-of-state tuition at schools like Penn State, like Colorado, like Michigan, it's extremely expensive. And I honestly had no way in my mind to pay for any of that. So to this day, I'm kind of sad about this part. I, I remember people who have had serendipitous influence on me. 
I remember their names. I remember the events. I remember them vividly. They don't remember them, but I remember them. But I don't remember this person. To this day, I still don't know who said, hey, why don't you take a look at the Reserve Officer Training Corps programs, the ROTC programs, because they offer scholarships. I had never heard of military scholarships. I had never heard of ROTC. I hadn't even looked at it. I had no prior family exposure to military, but I was looking for a way to pay for college. And I found out about the Air Force scholarship program. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I think I could probably do four years active duty. I think it would be interesting to be part of service and it would be a wonderful way to pay for college if it came through. So I applied and did the interview rounds and literally it's a blur in my life. And I ended up getting accepted into the ROTC program at Penn State in, in the Air Force. That program was to pay for computer science. And I said, okay, well, then I'm going to be a computer scientist. What? <laughs> it was. Uh, so those programs often target needs for the military and the needs, particularly in the Air Force at that time, and I imagine today are science. So engineering, computer science. And so back in the, I'm really dated. So we're going back to 1985 as we're talking here. So I had a scholarship for four years, full tuition at Penn State, if I complete a computer science degree. Well, I go, sure, I'm in, sounds great. And I walk into physics and I walk into calc. And I actually managed to survive those, but I hated computer algorithms and absolutely hated that process. In fact, one night I recall staying up for you know 30 plus hours debugging a program and I said, this isn't going to be my life, I hope. So I need a way to switch out. And I wanted to go into business. I had always wanted to go into business. So then I started asking, okay, how do I go to business education? Or how do I get a degree in business and still retain my scholarship? And that's when one of my officers says, well, you can become, you can be requalified into pilot candidacy. This is how ad hoc this decision process was. So I'm like, okay, I'll become a pilot in the Air Force, which is the most ridiculous thing to ever come out of my mouth at the time. I had no idea what it entailed. And so most people I know who went into this stream had been living this since they were four years old, staring at airplanes. And I'm just like, oh, I'll just be a pilot to pay for college. And that's where it all began. I'll pause there in case you have any questions. Yeah, I have so many questions. I cannot imagine you doing computer science. So that's hysterical first off. But it's so interesting to me that you started off and you had to pivot so early because you realized that you didn't enjoy what you were doing in college. Backing up slightly, so did you have to decide to do ROTC while you were still in high school or was that once you got to college? So did you have this idea of, I need to find a way to pay for my education when you were not, not engaging in it yet? Or was it like, yes. you got there? Yeah, no, I needed a way. I could not have accepted an offer for the for the out-of-state tuition without it. I wanted to ask, one of the things that we talk about a lot here is family influence and kind of um, the impact that having, whether it's siblings, parents, friends, um, just kind of that support network on this fundamental stage of your life when you're deciding what you want to do and who you want to be. Did that at all for you impact the decisions that you made and choosing ROTC, not choosing ROTC, transferring to accounting, any of these things? Did, did your network of people who you were surrounding yourself with at the time 
play a big role. That's an interesting question because I haven't reflected much on this, but I had the, you know, my fam- my family dynamic is one of where I feel as though I kind of raised myself. And so I didn't really rely much, if at all, on input from my parents or even people around me. So I just kind of did what I needed to do to survive. It was more of a survival instinct than anything. And I knew that if I wanted to stay, so I loved the school. I loved my environment. I loved what I was doing there. I just, it, but for that major part, like the institution felt right with me and I felt very comfortable there and I wanted to stay there. So this became more of a survival instinct. How do I stay? How do I continue instead of having to transfer to a less expensive place? So I didn't, I, I basically just did what I needed to do and didn't, didn't solicit much input. I, I obviously I had to solicit input from the leaders within the institution who funded the scholarship because right. that dictated a lot of my decision matrix and I, and I sorted through them, but then I kind of was like, okay, does this excite me? Does this sound interesting? Would I enjoy it? The hardest part there though, is, you know, we're talking about an 18, 19 year old. And I had this issue when I was recruiting also into the air force later when you speak to 18 and 19 year olds, they don't really understand themselves. And then you're like, Hey, would you like to fly airplanes for eight plus years? It sounds cool, but they have absolutely no concept of what that means and the work involved and whether they're compatible. So it's a very difficult question for them to even source and process. And they have such limited data. The same is, is with our career paths around, you know, do you want to be an accountant? Do you want to do audit tax? Do you want to do investment banking, consulting, what do you want to do? So, so it strengthens the kind of work that we're trying to do here is to try and give clues about how to, how to approach those kinds of questions. Well, kind of following off of that, one of the things that you are really passionate about now is interpersonal dynamics and kind of this idea of knowing your own self and knowing your own emotional reactions to other people. And especially how that relates to all fundamental relationships in our life, but especially the one that we have with ourselves. And what's interesting to me when I'm listening back to you telling your story is that you had at the time, it sounds like a very analytical way of thinking about things in a very, like you said, decision matrix of like, okay, here's, here's option ABC. Do you remember having that sense of self and that self-awareness at the time of your emotional reaction to all of these things? Or was it at the time that you were just kind of, like you said, going through that in a survival mechanism way? Oh, no, I was exactly the kind of person we discuss in this podcast. I was a hot mess. I had no idea. I was just running, letting the, purely letting the anxiety overwhelm and trying to problem solve to, to feed the anxiety. That was it. There was no sense of what's my bigger purpose or any of it there. And I meandered. And it's interesting because I didn't even become, I, I'm very fortunate. I guess in some ways it reminds me a little bit of Jess Wolf's prior story, her early story. I was fortunate that the choices I made allowed me the opportunities to develop self-awareness. At that, at that time, I was completely clueless. And it was all basically, how do I tamp down the anxiety and the uncertainty? Yeah. Okay. So maybe let's connect the dots more. So let's go back. So you're in college, you've decided you're, you're switching from computer science to accounting and you're going to go fly airplanes. What next? The shorter version of that is I ended up doing light, uh, boot camp, light aircraft training between junior and or sophomore and junior years of college. And then I ended up deferring a year to pilot training in air in Arizona. I did pilot training. The initial part of pilot training year was 
miserable. The start of it was very, very overwhelming. And then I started to kind of catch on and realize that I actually was really good at it and really enjoyed it. But it was because of specific people and specific events that helped me get that clarity. And then I subsequently came into the role where I became an instructor pilot right afterwards. And that's where a lot of clarity around this next phase, because a lot of people are like, well, you know, you even asked, why did you move into academe? And a lot of it was because I became an instructor and I was able to teach people who knew absolutely nothing about flying, how to become extremely precise pilots, flying upside down, flying at, you know, several hundred miles an hour, three feet apart from each other in weather, stuff like that very quickly. And so it was really rewarding to see the progression and feel the growth based on the input that we had. And I also realized that I could break very complex systems and complex concepts down and to easily digestible pieces, sound sound nuggets, whatever. And, and so I was really good at clarifying and simplifying so that people could learn quickly. And that was sort of my thing. So that's kind of a short version of that stage. Yeah, I was going to say, the most that I know about you comes from your time, I think, as a, a trainee, because you've shared, at least with myself and other people who I think have worked with you, a lot about I know that there's one story in particular that is still stuck with me about you learning to fly a plane and your instructor told you something that stuck with you. I don't know if you know which, which story I'm talking about. Yeah, I think that's Greg Russo. I, I think I know the exact episode. There's, there's actually two, two specific episodes. One Scott Carey early and the other is Greg Russo. And, to, and this actually clarifies that I remember the names of people. They don't remember me at all, but I remember them. Yeah, so Scott Carey early, getting to the anxiety piece, Scott Carey was a very spiritual uh, guy. He was one of the instructors. And I remember him saying to me at one point when, when it was super early and I was super nervous, he said, you know, do you trust me? And I said, yes. He goes, do you think I know what I'm doing? And I said, yes, I know you know what you're doing. He said, I don't train people to fail. I train people to graduate. And so you need to take a leap of faith and trust that I know what I'm doing and send, and, and I will not invest time in you if I don't think you have the capabilities to succeed. And there was something about the way he articulated that to me. And I've actually said similar after that, based on that language. And, uh, and so that helped me kind of allay a lot of the concerns and the anxiety and focus on the learning piece. And that was big. And then the thing I think you're talking about is Greg Russo at one point, I think it was like five rides in and he started literally slamming the dashboard of the airplane and he screamed an expletive and then said, when are you going to stop letting this airplane fly you and start flying it verbatim? That's what he said. And then on the ground, he said, you know, this thing has throttles. It has a stick. It's designed for you to place it where you want it to go, then put it where you want it to go, make it do what you want it to do. And that was turning around for me too, because that was literal. It it made me realize that I am in control of that airframe and I can literally tell it what to do. And that changed kind of my dynamics, but I also saw it as an analog to life. I mean, obviously there's a lot of stuff in life we can't control and we don't have full control over, but there are many things we do have the capacity to take control over. And so even in the work that we're doing in this podcast, when I work with students and mentor them, I'm like, you know, you have the capabilities to step in and start controlling some of the, some of the path you're on. And so you can step into them. You can do schooling, you can do immersive learning, you can start conversations with people. You can take some control to change the flight pattern, if you will, or the probability of an outcome. 
And, and so I owe that to Greg Russo. And as a, as a fun story, I think about five years ago, I reached out to him on Facebook. I finally found him on Facebook. I'm no longer on Facebook. That's for other reasons. But I reached out to him and I said, hey, you, you'll never believe like how much I, that one moment resonated with me. And he had no idea who I was. It was kind of one of those fun stories, but I thanked him for that moment anyway. Well, I think that's pretty phenomenal. And I think that's true in a lot of moments when we look back in life and for the person whose life it changes, it's like a radical shift in whatever it is, if it's a belief or if it's an approach to your worldview or whatever it is, it changes everything in that one split second. And I think that to me, that's, that story has stuck with me and I didn't experience it, but it really is like, I remember you telling me that story when I was in your office at CU Boulder as a junior in college. And I had so much anxiety because I had no idea what I was going to do. And I had just learned all of these tools from you. And you were like, Hey, I've been here before. Learn how to fly the plane. Well, one of the things too, that I want to, that I want to point about point out is one of the things I've told people and that I've come to realize is that life is constantly giving us serendipitous meetings with people. And a lot of our success is how we internalize what we get out of that. Uh, and there are moments where we'll hear one thing in an audience, in, even in, in our business, we, I might communicate something outward, or you might say something to somebody and you have no idea what the effect is, but on the, on the receiving end of that, it's a matter of how I internalize it and whether I'm going to act on it. And so I think a lot of it is like taking moments to reflect on what's the opportunity here. Can I exploit the opportunity? How can I exploit the opportunity, even though you might not ever see these people again? And so this is a couple examples of where I, I picked up something from these specific people and just carried it for the rest of my life and then actually paid it forward on out of respect for them. So the other piece is I remember them. And when I tell you about the lesson, I tell you that it was Greg Russo who gave me that advice at the time, even though it scared the crap out of me when he's smashing his fists on the dashboard of an airplane we're flying. Okay. So, so let's, let's go back to then, like you were getting into towards the end of your career, I believe it was with the air force that you were teaching. You decided that you wanted to go back into, uh, do a PhD in accounting. What was that thought process? Like, did you have other factors that you were trying to consider when you were like, you didn't stay with the air force long-term for like your whole career. So what was that decision process like? And then why, why a PhD? Yeah, there's a lot of complicated elements that led to that. So the number one reason I moved into academe specifically was I was bored. There was a certain kind of, I learned, and this is something that I've noticed with people who are around learning environments is, is there's sort of a excitement around the learning. There's an excitement anxiety around learning. And once you've mastered the learning, you kind of get bored quickly. And so you need to continually feed that learning phase. And it sounds crazy, but there was a point in which I was so complacent flying. And for listeners, you have to understand, I was flying spin demonstrations where we would wrap the airplane up so hard that we would be pinned against the sidewall four times a day to the same locations. So imagine doing the exact same amusement park ride, saying the exact same words four times a day, day in, day out. After a while, you know, it sounds cool, but it's really, really mundane. And, and, and I'm exaggerating a little bit on how much, but we would do the same low levels, the same routes, et cetera. Combine it with the fact that 
you know, as, as a business person, there are not surprisingly in every government agency, there are systemic bureaucratic things. And at that time I wasn't in agreement with the way they were handling some of the personnel issues. And I had an opportunity to go study and I was like, I'm going to go study instead. And I also realized that I really enjoyed teaching. So, and thinking and learning. So all of it collected at the same time. One of the core reasons why I think it's important to do this podcast as well was at the time I had a young child and I was uprooting everybody and it was done for my growth. And so what I try to communicate in this environment here is that I hadn't had this much clarity that I want to go and become a professor earlier before I had introduced externalities on family members. And now I'm here in a position where I want to grow personally, but I now have to impose moving costs and income lowering costs onto my family. And that's a lot for them to absorb. And you can imagine if you have, for example, a partner placement, job placement issue, or if your kids need specialized care that's local or something like that, the key is to find clarity on purpose as early as you can so that you reduce the imposition of costs to them. But that decision came reasonably costly there, Um, but we managed it. I did five years there, and then I ended up at Stanford, again, somewhat serendipitously. And that's where I learned everything about what I'm talking about in this podcast. Yeah. So I, I've heard the story before of how you ended up at Stanford, but I think I would love for you to share that with our audience of what, what happened for you that was based in your research interests that caught the attention of Stanford's graduate school of business. To be honest, I, I I still don't really know how that happened. I'm being very blunt and very candid and not trying to be humble. It's a blur. It's not something I ever sort of expected. I think part of it was there was some element of the type of work I was doing. I don't think my research was necessarily interesting to them. I think the way I went about it indicated that I was really serious about doing proper research. And I think that's key. And I'll explain that in a little bit of detail in a minute without getting specifics into my thesis. The second piece is that I was just myself. I decided that I was going to do the job market as me and not try to pretend I was polished or pretend I was something else. So I answered questions organically. I was honest when I didn't know stuff. And in fact, uh, Madhav Rajan, who is now the Dean at Chicago Booth, I had heard that he had told, he was, he was the chair at the time of our group. And I had heard he told one of my advisors, Alan is really good at knowing when he doesn't know something. That's what he said. And I said, yes, I am very good at telling you when I don't know something. And I'm very honest about it. And so these are the kinds of things I think with respect to the work effort, you know, I I was really interested in a particular question and the particular question could only be answered if I drove down to DC. And if I went into the Securities Exchange Commission reading room and I leafed through thousands of pieces of paper in in that reading room and collected data by hand. And that sounds so trivial, but very few people are willing to incur those costs and they often will look for shortcuts and ways to proxy and things like that. But I actually wanted to know the answer. And I think that came through and that was a little bit of an indicator about why that job unfolded. But I, to this day, I still don't really understand that decision on their side, but I'm very thankful for it. Well, I think what you just said is very, it, it resonates with 
kind of this concept that we have with this podcast is going and doing the work and being really cognizant of what you care about and going out and experiencing that and becoming genuinely a world expert in that one thing. Because like you said, people might be interested in lots of topics, but someone who really is willing to go and do the work and dig deep and to go sift through paper files, that is rare. Unless you actually care about something, you're not going to do the work. And if you actually care about something, then doing the work is fulfilling in a way. And I think I wanted to do the work. Ann Beatty, speaking of uh, mentors, Ann Beatty was my advisor. She's now at Ohio State. And she's the one who said to me, be prepared to be the world's expert on your topic when you leave. And I recall at the time thinking that was out, outrageously overwhelming and unrealistic. But I slowly internalized that. And I was like, okay, what do I really need to do to know this, to actually know this? And it turns out later, I got invited to go to the Securities Exchange Commission. And during that briefing, I was undoubtedly the person in the room who understood the rule that they had created more than anybody in that room at that time. And I thank her for that, uh, that particular nugget, because that was really meaningful to me. And quite frankly, it didn't take that much incremental work. It just took dedication and learning and and I actually kind of liked doing it. Yeah. Well, and I think that's something to remember for people listening right now. It doesn't have to be, it, it sounds really scary, like you just said, to be a world expert in something, but to have an opportunity, there's so many problems and opportunities in the world that to become an expert on something doesn't have to be an overwhelming concept. Yeah. Sometimes even something as simple as a couple of weeks of an immersive experience makes you Again, world experts, a big, big frame, but definitively the most informed person around you is easy. So going from GSB to you went to CU Boulder and now you're at Cambridge, you've won a number of teaching awards. So why do you invest so much time in teaching? This is something that I remember thinking when I was your student and when you reached out to me about doing this career mentorship thing, because I've had many professors and academia isn't necessarily built on how much time you invest in teaching, but rather in research and publications. So why, why do you care? Why is this something that you've invested so much of your life in? I still try to reconcile. I don't know why, because it's not really as rewarded professionally as it could be the teaching part, the mentorship part. There, there are many reasons. One is it fuels me. So you talk about interpersonal dynamics. I'm, I fuel off of interpersonal relationships and learning about people. It's almost like when I sit down and get to know people, it's as if I'm reading a book live. And so I get to learn because I can't do everything. I don't want to do everything. I'm incapable of doing everything, but I can hear vicariously about some of the, I mean, some of my former students have climbed Everest, et cetera. So I hear the stories and, I, and I'm sort of living or learning as I listen to them. Some of it is in the classroom, honestly, if I'm being very candid, it's because I get bored quickly, particularly teaching technical stuff. And so bringing in the extra stuff, bringing in the stories, bringing in kind of the humor, the education, the edutainment, I call it, livens me up. It brings the energy up in the room. It makes the experience better for everybody, including me. And there's nothing worse than doing another pension problem, third time, students glossed over in misery, 
collective misery. It's just so, so introducing a little bit of life around that. The mentorship piece is multifaceted. One is because I actually care about problems we face and my generation is handing down many. And if your generation doesn't step in, I fear for the world. I fear for my children's world. I fear for society in many ways. The second is because institutions we work for need financial support and curriculum support. And if we invest in students properly, then we enhance their impact in every facet, their financial wealth, their capabilities to feed the institution. And I know a lot of institutions are thinking about bringing money back, but I'm more about bringing opportunities and learning back. Money is lovely as well. If you want to donate to what we're doing research-wise, et cetera. But I think we need to think in terms of how can we make you the best resource, not only for societal impact, but for the learning elements of the future generations of our school. So to me, I, I call it human venture capital. And the idea is that we're trying to elevate the value of each person with whom we, incorpor- we, we, we encompass in that way that allows us to, to do good things for society, learn more, broaden our impact across the school. So that's part of why I do that as well. Yeah, I'd like to tell our, our listeners that part of the ways that you liven up classrooms, uh, at least in my time when I was in Alan's classroom, was to use Justin Bieber songs, uh, Captain and Tennille from like the 60s. He would have us text our parents and say, hey, do you remember this song? Like there's lots of attention grabbing things that existed in what year was that? Like 2016 that were just very true to hold our attention. And it was very entertaining, but also I didn't hate accounting when I learned it from you. So I think that that's really special. And I think it's called shifting misery. If I can shift your misery Ah. point over to the music, then you no longer focus your misery on the accounting. Got it. Okay. Well, I think one of the, the best places to end maybe here is we ask a lot of our guests, what their purpose is and what their one line is. So what is yours? What is your purpose? To distribute misery to students via <laughs> music? I don't know. No, I guess I reflect on it. I think, I think it's to raise a generation of impact leaders to fix some of the stuff. That's really what it is. Yeah. I think that that's very rare that you've literally dedicated your life to doing that. And I'm very thankful. And I I know that this work that we're doing here is really important. It's uh, been fun today to kind of hear your story in full. And I've learned a lot. So thank you for sharing. Uh, Before we wrap up, there is one quick announcement. We are looking for an intern. So if you know anyone who, or you yourself, listeners, would like to be our social media marketing intern, send us your statement of interest and why you would like to work with Alan and myself to paths2purposepod at gmail.com. If not, we will see you next week and you can find us on all the social media sites. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye.